play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, legendary radio DJ Marco Collins. Broadcasting live from Jupiter Studios, Death Cab for Cutie. The Beastie Boys are in the studio. With me, ladies and gentlemen, is Black Francis from the Pixies. Yes, that's me. Ladies and gentlemen, Pedro the Lion. Hey, this is Eddie from the band... What's my band? Soundgarden. Oh, no, Nirvana. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, Pearl Jam. And you're listening to Marco Collins, the first person ever to play My Little Voice on the radio. Marco is one of the first DJs to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he earned that honor by being the first in the country to play some of the world's biggest grunge bands back in the 90s. That's when he was the music director and DJ at Seattle's 107.7 The End. He broke... Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Garbage, Beck, Weezer, uh... I got the list right here. Yeah, there's probably more. The Presidents of the USA. Prodigy. Prodigy. Marco is also one of the sweetest and most genuine people you will ever meet. He's one of those people that everybody loves. And these days, you can hear him on KEXP, a Seattle public radio station popular with cool dads and young cools who are partial to indie music, good coffee, Subarus, and thick-rimmed glasses. Young cools. I invented that term. I like it. I think I did. Marco is also a big fan of breakfast, specifically Eggs Benedict. So I take a field trip to Glow's, one of Seattle's favorite diners, to try his very favorite version. And everybody has heard the expression, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But is it really? And why do we eat specific breakfast foods like cereal and orange juice? Because it was all promoted by people trying to sell you the stuff. We look at the fascinating history of the American breakfast with friend of the show and food historian Ken Albala. And the history of cereal with culinary historian Heather Arndt Anderson. But first, my interview with Marco Collins. Hello, hello. Check one. Right up on that mic. Marco Collins is very comfortable in front of a microphone. And I'm on the phone with Courtney Love, who's got a couple of bones to pick. No, my bones are fine. I'm happy. I'm, <laughs> I have my beautiful baby. I have I have a lot of really good friends. A boring, great life. I get up every morning. and I, What do you mean a boring life? You just had dinner with Oliver Stone. You're going to be in a new Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe it's not going to be so boring anymore. But you better pass your pee test, woman. I, I passed my pee test. Go. Like a lot of us radio people, Marco's first gig was in college radio. He started back in 1984 at San Diego State. And in 1991, he was hired at The End in Seattle, where he was given the freedom to play whatever music he liked. So when Loser by Beck ended up on his desk, that was Beck's very first single, Marco played it. He played it so much, he nearly wore out the vinyl. Yeah, yeah, they were playing vinyl, even in the 90s. Radio was very different then, and we had freedom to sort of throw things onto the airwaves and see if they stuck. And it was a company that was willing to take those risks. So we were a commercial station that sort of operated like a college station. I could play independent artists that didn't have a multi-million dollar marketing campaign behind them. And we did that a lot. And we were able to break records because 
the station's ratings were so great that other stations in the country followed our lead. So we were able to add a record, and then other stations would find that same record and add it. We sort of were able to break bands that way. It was incredible. How did that change your life? Obviously, it changed the lives of all of these musicians and made them internationally famous, but it changed you too. Yeah, I mean, it really did. It. I was lucky. I feel like I was in the right place at the right time. You know, the whole grunge explosion happened. I got here in 91. The first two records I got handed to me as a music director were Nevermind from Nirvana and Pearl Jam's 10. That entire decade was just phenomenal. You know, it's kind of been documented. You know that I put out a movie uh, about five years ago. The Glamour and the Squalor. Glamour and the Squalor. It documented the scene as seen through my eyes, my life and the scene. That's changed my life dramatically. It's been a lot of fun. But the documentary, The Glamour and the Squalor, also showed the dark moments. Marco struggled with substance abuse for many years. So I'm coming up on two and a half years of being clean and sober. Let me just set the stage with that. But back then... I was not. And there was a, a certain point where the partying got so out of control for me that I was on the air at 7 p.m. every night. So I just had a rule that I had to be in bed by noon <laughs> so I could sleep from noon to 6, get up, shower, and get to work and be on the air at 7. You are living, though, the true sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of lifestyle. I mean, because yeah. you post now on your social media. Every once in a while, you put up a picture, and it's you and Kurt Cobain hanging out on a dumpster. You hung out with all these people. Like, they were your friends. You know, when I moved here, the scene hadn't blown up yet. Nirvana had only put out an independent record. I thought the biggest band in Seattle was going to be Mudhoney. I thought for sure. But none of those bands were huge yet. So everybody knew each other. Everybody hung out. Everybody drank beer at Nils Bernstein's house on Capitol Hill. Who's it, Nils Bernstein? Nils uh, ran the Nirvana fan club. Oh, okay. And he was one of Kurt's really good friends. And, you know, so much happened at Nils' house. One of the things that you talk about is the fact that you think that you were kind of accepted into that group because you were gay. And you weren't out yet, but you said that you kind of fit in in this way with all these misfits and they accepted you as one of their own. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I think I clicked with the Nirvana crowd and Kurt and Courtney and whatnot is because I was a bit of a misfit. I wasn't out at that time, and I think they liked the fact that I had this quote-unquote dirty secret, as it were. But so much of the scene, you know, when I first came out, I came out in Out Magazine with Patty Schemmel from the band Hole, Courtney Love's band. A bunch of us in the scene, Out Magazine, came to Seattle to do a piece on the queer scene in Seattle, in the grunge scene. I remember being so nervous when that edition of Out Magazine came out. I was like, oh my God, it's coming out tomorrow. The world is going to know. And then I realized only gay people read Out Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Before Marco had access to bands, he was trying to get access to bands. And on one occasion, he used food to try and meet one of his favorite acts. So I was a huge Heart fan long before I ever came to Seattle. I worked in a record store in San Diego, uh, which afforded me VIP passes to go see Heart at the sports arena. Huge, monstrous show. And we were able to go backstage. And the meet and greet was really impersonal. And it was one of the first times I had ever gone back at a major show. I was really disappointed with the whole thing. I thought, 
we had to walk by each member, sort of say hello to them, not touch them. If we got a picture with them, we had to just lean over a table. And I thought, this isn't enough. I'm backstage. I want to hang out. I want more. I want to talk. I want to sit down. I want to drink with Ann Wilson. So I decided I was going to sneak into their actual dressing room. So what I did is there was catering in the room that we were in, and I grabbed a tray of cookies, and I held it up like I was a waiter, (laughs) and I walked to the dressing room. Confidently. Confidently. Walked right past the security guy. Walked into the dressing room, walked over to the table where Hart's catering was, all the while trying not to not look obvious. Yeah. And then with my hand, I picked the cookies off the tray and put them on the table. I mean, if that wasn't the most obvious. And at one point, I look over and the tour manager's looking at me like, what's going on with this guy? <laughs> and then when I was busted and ushered out, I looked over at Ann Wilson and she was just laughing on the way as I was. Yeah, I didn't even get to talk to her, but just seeing that laugh. <laughs> that was she your... was just reveling in my scam. I mean, you know, whether or not I actually got to sit down and talk to Ann Wilson over a beer or a cookie. It would it, have to be a cookie. It was just the fun of, you know, sneaking back there. I felt like a badass. She was on the podcast. Was she really? Her last meal is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Wow. Okay. I know. I was surprised by that. Huh. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Marco Collins shares his last meal, and he actually convinces me to drive to the edge of the city limits to eat fast food. And I never eat fast food. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Marco Collins, what would your last meal be? My last meal, I am a huge fan of Eggs Benedict. So my last meal would be Eggs Benedict with a slice of tomato added. 
and fantastic hollandaise. Where do you go? Where do you like I to go? I go to Glows. That's my favorite Eggs Benedict in this city is Glows. And, you you know, they kind of image themselves as just a dumpy little diner. But you go in there and that food is amazing. You know, the Eggs Benedict, you know, I have a running date with a buddy that we just meet there like once a week and have Eggs Benedict. Uh, it's fantastic. It's just the hollandaise is like really lemony. It's just it's wonderful. I like places. how you don't pronounce the S on the end. You're so front. Yeah. Hollandaise. Is it hollandaise? I don't know. Hollandaise? That's what dumb Americans call. That's what we honkies call it. Yeah. yeah. Hollandaise. hollandaise. That's classy, though. Hollandaise. I like I that know. you go to Glows. I feel like Glows is one of the last holdouts in Seattle. So yeah. for people who don't live here, um, we've had so many places close and so much demolished and, you know, this kind of Glows new city. And Glows is still there. Yep. And, it, and it looks the same. And it's just like an old school. It's- I love it, man. I just forget that their food is so good. Their Eggs Benedict, you don't have to add a slice of tomato. It comes with a slice. Their Eggs Benedict is A+. plus. So let's go layer by layer. So you have okay. English muffin. Yep. Ham. Ham. Slice of ham, slice of tomato, the egg, and the hollandaise. Hollandaise. And do you like <laughs> potatoes on the side? What do you like with yeah, it? Yeah, sure, sure. I like uh, hash browns. Hash browns is my thing, but that's not necessary. Sometimes I'll do fruit, like a little bit of fruit. So you said in your notes to me that Eggs Benedict is really important to you. Why is, it is. that? It's important to me because, first of all, I'm a breakfast guy. It's like the perfect breakfast. You get some veggies in there. It's a little bit fattening with the the hollandaise, but I don't know. It just does it for me. I feel like I can eat Eggs Benedict any time of the day. Mm -hmm. It's not just a breakfast thing. It's like breakfast dressed up a little bit. With a little cloak made of hollandaise. (laughs) Have you ever made it at home? Because... It is oh, something you can get at every I diner. I can't get the hollandaise right. The hollandaise is right. <laughs> I can't get it right either way. Uh, yeah, I just can't. It's really hard to make good hollandaise. And poached eggs are hard to do too, yeah. actually. Like they kind of fall apart in the water. Right, right. Yeah. I'm better at that though. You got to have a little bit of a circle, a, a whirlpool going in the boiling water. And then you sort of just drop the eggs slowly. It's become a science for me. I'm, I'm pretty good at that part. When you were a kid, were you into breakfast at dinner? Yes. I'm into breakfast at dinner now. Yeah. I love breakfast. Pancakes, blueberry pancakes. I mean, I think that breakfast should be available any hour of the day, anywhere you go. In fact, it really pisses me off that McDonald's stops serving their bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits at 10 a.m. Everything was only available till 10. Right. And then they suddenly made breakfast now, available later. Now you can They're get- They're pulling back? Now you can get Egg McMuffins all day. Yeah. But not the- Bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit, which is the jam. When I used to eat McDonald's, like in high school right. and college, I was never <laughs> you don't up. eat it at all? No. There's not a time that you're like, you feel weak, and you're like, I'm just going in there for a damn quarter pounder with cheese. No. I want some of those fries. Although I did have Taco Bell a couple weeks ago for the <laughs> oh, first nice. time in years. Wait, have you had the, the chicken sandwich at uh, Popeye's? Have you no. had that chicken sandwich? I need to get in line. Oh, my God. Is it God. worth the hype? It's fantastic. And the reason it's fantastic is the chicken is super moist. You know, I was thinking, how the hell? Why is this getting so much buzz? Yeah, like it's just fast food. Just Yeah, it's just fried fast food. And they don't overcook the chicken. So the chicken is super moist. But the key to the whole thing are the pickles. Plus, it's a big hunk of chicken, you know, and they have these brioche rolls that they use. It's really kind of fancy. I got to get in there, man. I was hard. I wasn't going because of the lines, but maybe now it's kind of chilled out a little bit. Nope. It hasn't chilled out at all. Go in the morning. 
go for lunch only because at dinner, they're normally out. They get shipments every single day. The only reason I know this is because I've talked to one of the employees there a little bit about the chicken sandwich because of the hype. And you make friends with everybody. So now you got your chicken yeah, sandwich hookup. <laughs> I'm the guy that takes the bus and, and talks to everybody. Do you tend to follow food trends? Because that's like kind of a little trendy thing right now. Yeah, but I'll tell you what I have not jumped into is pokey. I knew you were going to say that. That's just, so funny. I had a feeling you were going to so say weird. that. There's a place across the street yeah. here. And I love sushi. And everybody's like, why haven't you done pokey? Love pokey. And I think it's just I need somebody to hold my hand with it. Yeah. Walk me in there. Tell me what I'm eating. There's a lot more ingredients in pokey. I went in that place for the first time last you. week, and they were playing Christmas music, you know, because it was Christmas time, right. but they were playing that, <laughs> that dog one. Really? And I was like, I don't know if I trust this place. Like, do you eat poke at a place that's playing dog barking Christmas music? God, you're killing me. I so. kind of liked it, actually. <laughs> Thanks to Marco, last weekend I drove down to the only Popeyes in the Seattle area, uh, it is unincorporated King County, technically, which I noticed because, fun fact, Seattle banned styrofoam many years ago, and we got our little tiny cups of mashed potatoes and coleslaw, and I was like, wait a minute, why is this in star? Why do we have straws? Straws are banned in Seattle. <laughs> it's like you take one step out of the city, and it's just a landfill, like a garbage dump of stuff. Um, but... It was worth it for killing the earth and driving my car a little bit farther than I usually would for fast food. That chicken sandwich is so good. I am the billionth person to say it, but you know what? I am the billionth person to say it. It is super juicy. Juicy. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) It's super juicy. It's crispy. It's a big fat piece of meat. And you know when you see a commercial for fast food or you see the picture of the burger you're about to get and then it shows up on the tray and it's like squashed and flat and tiny. This is not that. It looks just like the picture. Totally worth the hype. Just to sum it up. What do the kids say? T-Y-S-L? T-I-S-L? T-L-S-R. I'm not a cool youth. Okay. A cool young. <laughs> Wait. A young cool. A young cool. We're awesome. This is what we do. We uh, coin phrases and then we completely forget them. <laughs> okay, so back to Marco's last meal. He wants Eggs Benedict with a slice of grilled tomato from Glow's, a diner in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. Glow's is an institution open since 1987, which doesn't sound like that long ago, but in Seattle, that is the equivalent of 200 years old. It's a tiny little no-frill spot on a busy street in the heart of the Capitol Hill neighborhood. There is often a line sneaking down the street, and Glows fulfills Marco's ultimate wish. You can get breakfast anytime you want, because they only serve breakfast. On the weekdays, they're open 7 to 3. And then on the weekends, we open at 12.01 a.m. on Saturday morning, I guess you would call it. And then we stay, yeah, midnight. And then we stay open until 4 p.m. Working an overnight diner that opens at midnight, that's a whole different scene than when you're open 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. So do you put certain people on that shift or do you have to have a certain kind of personality to deal with all the people? Yes, kind of. There's a lot more... uh, rowdy behavior that takes place on the night shift. Um, More of the crazy stories happen on the night shift. There's a lot more bodily fluids (laughs) that end up on the night shift. Um, So you have to have some crew with a strong stomach to clean that up. That is owner and cook Julie Reisman. 
Glow serves up a pretty classic diner menu. There are scrambles and omelets, pancakes and French toast, and five variations of Eggs Benedict. You can have either the classic ham avocado, which is the Eggs Californian, uh, the Eggs Florentine, which is with spinach, sautéed spinach, uh, the Eggs Blackstone, which is sautéed spinach and bacon, and the smoked salmon Benedict, which speaks for itself. All of the bennies come with a slice of grilled tomato, for a little bit of acid, Julie says, and their homemade hollandaise. Or as Marco likes to say, hollandaise. How do you make hollandaise and why is yours so good? It's just really about that arm effort because you just got to whisk it forever. And I think a lot of people give up early and you end up having thin hollandaise sauce. Julie says some places use instant hollandaise from a powder or from a mix. But at Glow's, they make everything from scratch. Hollandaise is a classic mother sauce. It's just melted butter, ideally clarified butter, slowly whisked into egg yolks, and then hit with some salt and a squeeze of lemon for tang and brightness. The trick is getting it to emulsify just right and keeping it at the right temperature so the sauce doesn't break. Julie says 20% of Glow sales come from Benedict's. It is definitely a top favorite. Kids, you know, they usually come in and they order pancakes. And uh, there was this kid that came in one time and he couldn't have been more than six. Ordered the Benedict. And we all were just back there just like in awe of this little tiny person just straight up ordering a Benedict. And then that kid came up to the counter afterwards and he just looked at us like he was, you know, in his 40s and just said, that was the very best Benedict I've ever had. And I was just like, who is this kid? Can we get more of them to come in here? I imagine that A, he probably gets beat up a lot at school and B, he was wearing a little suit with professorial patches on the arms. I love it. Yeah, the little suit. Julie got hired as a cook back in 2001 when she was just 22 years old. She became a co-owner in 2005 and now, now she's the big boss. And she says that she loves coming to work every day. But Glow's was opened by a woman named Glow, who continued to wait tables until she passed away in 2005. Is that Glow the picture up above the kitchen? Yes, that is Glow. That is Glow. It's like a headshot. Yeah, it's totally a headshot. Yeah, she was fantastic. She was a kind of an old school server where she was like, could get a little snotty at you if you gave her, you know, some attitude, but was just had a really big heart and was always really welcoming here. And she helped a lot of people over the years. And so we kind of in turn do the same thing. And we, we help out a lot of the local homeless population and, you know, just try to do whatever we can. Over the last several years in Seattle, locals have watched the city change drastically. Every month, literally thousands of people have moved into the city for tech jobs, and a couple years ago, it was one of the fastest-growing cities in America. So us locals have watched with tears in our eyes, to put it dramatically. But it's true, though. It's sad to watch all these buildings get demolished and businesses go out of business to make room for new housing. So Glows feels extra special. It has some of that old Seattle grit. It's a workhorse that has seen the city transition into a grunge mecca and then into a tech mecca. And I asked Julie what the place means to locals on Capitol Hill. The day after the election in 2016, uh, the next morning we came in here and I think that that one single day really said to us how important we were because we were all just sort of dumbfounded. <laughs> and I don't want to, you know, I mean, I'm not here to talk about politics, but I mean, you know, we were, we were just sort of like in an emotional state. And we came in here and we had discussed, my server and I, we just kind of looked at each other in the morning. Like we walked in and both of us just kind of almost started to cry when we saw each other. And 
we were just like, should we just close? Like, I can we handle this? This is a really dark moment. And then it was like, you know, just a few minutes before 7 a.m. when we opened, and there were already people lining up outside, and they were just kind of kept wandering in, and everyone just seemed real somber, and it was just like, okay, I guess we should be here. It seems like people want us to be here, and that day just got, like, progressively busier in a way that, you know, Wednesdays aren't usually. <laughs> and we could just tell that people needed to feed their souls and that they needed to feel better about things and this was the place that they came to do that and we we realized by the end of the day that you know that's why we're here we're here to feed souls and to make people feel good it's clear that uh that we're important to them and they're important to us as for the history of eggs benedict it's fuzzy and in my opinion not interesting enough to get into detail on. So there are a handful of hotel restaurants that claim that they invented it starting in the 1860s, but the English muffin wasn't invented until 1894. In America, by the way, it is not actually English. It was invented by an English person who kind of did his take on a crumpet. And a true Eggs Benedict must be on an English muffin. So that is just a little history teaser. After the break, the real history lesson begins. And it is so, so fascinating and far more interesting than the history of Eggs Benedict. We're going to talk about the history of breakfast in America and the super strange origin of American breakfast cereal. I hate to say this word, and I'm going to say it twice, but breakfast cereal has its roots in preventing masturbation. I'm saying it for you guys so you'll go to the next segment. This is a tease. Okay, we'll be back. Get me a cold compress. Marco Collins is a big fan of breakfast. Eggs Benedict, pancakes, bacon and eggs. But how did those foods become the designated breakfast foods? We eat all kinds of things for lunch and dinner. But breakfast is entirely its own thing. My whole life, I've been hearing, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I wanted to know where that came from, because when I started looking around, uh, it was just a marketing scheme, right? Exactly. Yeah. It was the whole first generation of people who invented breakfast cereals. That's Ken Abala. He's a history professor who specializes in food history at the University of Pacific in California. He says before the 15th century, people didn't really eat breakfast. And when they started to, they ate the same foods they ate for dinner. You know, people used to eat, you know, leftovers from the last day or some bread. And I think as people increasingly began to work in places where they didn't live, convenience became a real matter. And the perception that this stuff was healthy and you needed it to fortify you for the day was entirely a marketing scheme. You can look at the stuff throughout the 20th century they told us was healthy to eat. Spinach and Popeye himself was invented by the spinach marketing board, you know, and the idea that you should drink orange juice first thing in the morning. Well, the orange marketing board, you know, figured out that. So I would take much of 20th century nutritional advice with a grain of salt because it was all promoted by people trying to sell you the stuff. In 1944, General Mills launched a huge ad campaign for grape nuts. The tagline was, eat a good breakfast, do a better job. And the radio ad said, nutrition experts say, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Aha, that is where it came from. So people made sure to eat breakfast, and they often ate cereal because they were told it was healthy. And it used to be, back when it was first invented. At least, that was the intention. 
Back in the day, John Harvey Kellogg and his brother William Keith Kellogg were running this sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and that's, you know, where the Seventh-day Adventist Church was also originated. That's culinary historian Heather Arndt Anderson, author of Breakfast, A History. The Kelloggs were Seventh-day Adventists who believed that health was connected to righteousness. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, who was a disciple of Sylvester Graham, inventor of the original Healthy Graham Cracker, issued caffeine, alcohol, spicy foods, sugar, white bread, meat. Graham and Kellogg believed masturbation was the greatest evil and eating healthy, bland foods and only whole grains would quench all sexual desire. And they would get these really wealthy clients who would kind of come to do like the predecessor of like hashtag clean eating. (laughs) They would come stay at these sanitaria, which are kind of like more strict versions of day spas where you would go and get on this clean diet, kind of hit the reset button on your body, do all these cold water baths and exercise regimes and, you know, weird enemas. And it was all part of this whole program that wealthy people would go subscribe to. And one day the Kellogg guys were in the kitchen cooking some cereal and had to run off. When they got back, they realized they had left the stove on. And so the the cereal, which had started out as a mush, was like this really weird, hard substance. And there was so much product, they didn't want to waste it. So they just thought they would try to figure out what they could do with it. And so they spread it out onto these rollers and rolled it into these very thin sheets. And it just kind of broke up and crumbled. And so they fed it to the people staying at the sanitarium and they liked it. And so the Kellogg boys were like onto something. The problem was that the corn and a lot of grains, they grew rancid so fast because of the fat content. So William Keith Kellogg suggested that they add some sugar and salt to it to act as a preservative. But uh, John Harvey Kellogg was adamantly opposed to that. He didn't want to add any preservatives. He wanted it to be very, you know, healthy and low sugar, low salt. And so they really could not see eye to eye on this at all. And it ended up causing this permanent fraternal rift that they never, you know, mended. Well, Keith Kellogg went on to start the Kellogg's company, which, you know, we know of as the cereal company today. And then John Harvey Kellogg stayed at the sanitarium. And and it's funny because there is so much sugar in Kellogg's cereal products, not even just the kids' cereals, but cornflakes are so high in sugar that you can't get them using your WIC benefits because they exceed the maximum sugar allowance to be covered by women, infants, and children benefits. That first cereal invented by the Kellogg's was cornflakes back in 1894. And it was dry and bland, just the way they wanted it to be, and it had to be soaked in milk to become edible. But it really caught on, and by 1903, there were 100 cereal companies in Kellogg's town of Battle Creek. But it wasn't until 1928 that Will Keith Kellogg had his next big hit. That is when he perfected Rice Krispies. And by the 1940s, when women started going off to work while the men went to war, they needed a way to easily feed their children. And the ads pointed women to cold cereal. This started the whole culture of eating processed, quick-to-prepare breakfast in America. I think most of us, if not all of us, have grown up thinking cereal is a totally normal breakfast. But if you think about it, it's not actually a great way to start the day. It's just pure carbs and sugar. There is no protein to keep you full. There is nothing to feed your brain. It's basically dessert or like having the entire bread basket when you go out to dinner. But the cereal companies have conned us into thinking it's a good, healthy breakfast. 
If I could have one take home lesson for your listeners is that they should explore the idea of having soup for breakfast. I'm team soup when it comes to, to weird breakfast foods. Tell me more. Well, um, besides just pozole, which is a great hangover cure, pho is a great hangover cure. Um, pho is one of those things you can just get at nine in the morning here in Portland, Oregon. Um, all the Vietnamese restaurants open early and it's usually, I see like little old men eating pho at like nine in the morning. And uh, so I started kind of getting my head around this idea of having breakfast soup. And now it's like pretty much my most standard you know, breakfast choice. I make myself some spicy soup, sometimes kimchi stew or some noodle soup, and I just feel good all day. It, like, hydrates you. It's funny because Ken said exactly the same thing. I went for about three years eating noodle soup for breakfast and got a book out of that, but it was every single day I would make a different noodle soup. But I stopped that just because I got kind of bored with it. So usually what I'll do, I would say maybe 50% of the time I eat pizza for breakfast, (laughs) which I make, you know, on the spot. Sometimes if I don't have a lot of time, I'll use a flour tortilla and put cheese on it. And sometimes tuna or ham or vegetables or something like that. It's it's just wonderful for breakfast. So you will bake a fresh pizza in the morning for breakfast? Yeah. This morning I didn't. I actually had, only because I had a decent baguette from the Bay Area, you probably know Acme bread. Yes. Um, and, I, and I found some uh, duck pate. So I had <laughs> pate and cheese and a baguette and olives for breakfast this morning. It was good. <laughs> I am 100% team Ken and Heather. I have always preferred to eat leftovers for breakfast, like leftover spaghetti or, oh God, leftover Chinese food is the best. But our culture tells us we're supposed to eat eggs and bacon or toast and cereal for breakfast because that is a normal thing to eat. But it's actually an American thing. It's not a human thing. In Japan, the traditional breakfast spread is miso soup, rice, fish, pickles. In Israel, the typical breakfast is cheese and a chopped salad, some smoked fish, maybe some shakshuka. And the fact that we're conditioned to eat three meals a day was also invented by our culture. And we think it's physiologically necessary also. We think you you can't be healthy and, and, you know, function unless you have something for breakfast. You could train your body to do anything. And I think in terms of like evolution, we probably didn't eat regular meals. For hunters and gatherers, whenever they had food at hand or hunted something and captured it, they ate a lot. And then they probably fasted for for days. And, And I don't know whether it's necessarily healthier for you or not, but we certainly can go along much longer than we think without food. We're we're conditioned socially to think, oh, I'm hungry because it's lunchtime and I better get something. That's a good point. I never thought about that before. Like the ancient man was not snacking, probably. Or they he was snacking all the time. You know, it was having little nibbles here and there, and, and that's another argument that hunters and gatherers mostly gather. They don't hunt except on rare occasions. They'll get a big kill, but they'll be eating berries and nuts and little and plants that they gather um, all throughout the day. Let's get back to our breakfast boy, Mr. Marco Collins. Marco has made a name for himself in 90s grunge music. And as much as he loves reminiscing about that time, he has been less than enthusiastic to take jobs that focus exclusively on that. So he's not really interested in hosting your 90s at 9 show or whatever you want to call it. At KEXP, he can once again play whatever he wants. And are you glad to be a little bit divorced from all of the 90s stuff that you're always associated with? I am. I am. I mean, you know what? I look back on that time and I think it was an amazing time. It means a lot to a lot of people. 
my head is not there. I'm not listening to old grunge records anymore. I'm more interested in what the scene is doing now and what kind of music is is coming out tomorrow. And that was Marco Collins' last meal. You can listen to Marco anywhere in the world streaming on KEXP, and I highly suggest following him on Facebook. I know most people have moved to Instagram, but Marco is one of the best people on Facebook. He posts very thoughtful and fun and interesting things, and you will be happy you listened to me. Sorry for yelling at you. Thanks to culinary historians Ken Albala and Heather Arndt Anderson. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded with Aaron Mason. Say hi, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Theme music by Prom Queen. And my normal spiel, take a couple minutes and give us a five-star rating, or write us a little review, or just follow along on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. You always look so young, though. I was just looking at your uh, Wikipedia, and I was, I'm was i so bad at math. I was like, 1965, and I'm using my fingers. I'm like, I think 54. I did that wrong. He yeah. can't be 54. That's crazy, because yeah. you always look like you're like four years old. Ah, fuck. <laughs> I wish. Thank you preschool. very much. That's mm-hmm. super, super nice. That's what I always joke about the diet stuff. I'm like, I'm trying to get down to my birth weight, just eight pounds, 10 <laughs> ounces. birth weight. And then I'll just be hot. Always so hot. <laughs> I've never even heard that. That's hilarious. My joke.